Welcome to Grace Story Podcast. We're here to connect you with education, resources, and community that equip you for the journey of restoration. My name is Nate Davison, and I'm your host here at Grace Story Podcast. Thank you for joining us for this episode. Uh, one, it's a blend of story and, uh, and, and hope and restoration, and I think it's one that you're going to want to listen into. Now, before we get started, I would say there is uh, content in this that is sensitive in nature. Um, there is talk about sexual assault. There is talk about uh, predators and different things like that. So if that's something that, uh, well, it's just something to be mindful of as we uh, go through this episode. John Hopkins is our guest today, um, and we're going to bring him into the show and just get started. John, welcome to Gray Story Podcast. Hey, Nate. Thanks. Thanks for having me. I appreciate the opportunity to be on. Absolutely. We love, uh, I've been looking forward to having you on. We talked uh, just about a month ago about getting you on here and sharing your story and also sharing some of your passion coming out of your story uh, as well. So we're excited about that. Um, d- tell us a little bit about yourself, but maybe through the lens of, uh, I'll throw you, I'll throw you a, a curveball. How would your parents describe what you do for a living? Um, so I would say they would describe what I do for a living as um, a little bit of everything that doesn't amount to much. <laughs> no, no, really. Uh, probably just that um, I spend a lot of time talking to and um, mentoring, discipling teens um, and spend a lot of time with uh, with my wife and my kiddos. Um, and my special needs son has a lot of surgeries and stuff like that. So I spend a lot of time um, recouping, uh, helping him recoup from that, helping my wife recoup from that. Yeah. Um, and yeah, and then I do sometimes do a little construction stuff on the side. Um, yeah, a little bit of everything. One of those jack of all trades, master of, well, we'll say master of some. I yeah, always, yeah, yeah. I always dislike when people say master of none because I'm like, that's eh, not true. It's just not. And, yeah. and you do a lot of work with youth uh, through a couple positions. Can you tell us tell us uh, about that? Yeah, so um, I'm the youth pastor at uh, my church here in Muncie. Um, and God kind of opened up doors um, because I started praying about how can I, or asking God, how can I become more involved in the community more than just um, my youth group? And my youth group is mainly outreach. Um, you know, so we pick up kids on buses and bring them in and Um, So I was already in the community, but how can I become more involved in the community? And kind of out of nowhere, um, God provided a job opportunity for me um, to switch career paths. I was um, in construction. I'd moved into management, um, was making pretty good money. And um, God was kind of like, hey, you prayed. Here's the opportunity. Um, And so switched completely, um, went into full-time ministry. Um, where I work for uh, Muncie Area Youth for Christ. Um, Youth for Christ is a global organization, um, but here in Muncie we do, um, I'm the director of City Life, which um, is basically kind of hard to explain, but youth group slash life skills slash mentoring and tutoring um, kids that don't have um, as many privileges as some other kids may have. Um, so that's kind of how, and, and I was able to kind of mesh those together because I have kids from my youth group that are also involved in city life and then kids from city life that started coming to youth group. 
And so God really opened the opportunity for me to mesh both of my ministries together. Well, what an opportunity with that. I mean, and, and it's my understanding some of your some of your passion for youth comes out of your own story um, mm-hmm. and being there for, for kids that are going through difficult, beyond, difficult is such a, a, a throwaway word for the things that they're going through. Um, so I want to zero in on you as we talk about that and shift gears, talking about your story, which, mm-hmm. uh, you know, sadly is all too common, um, mm-hmm. but then not spoke about, um, you know, and it's, and it's one, well, let's just go back there and your story, wherever you want to start off, uh, where does, where does John's story begin? Yeah. So, um, it starts kind of back in the very beginning, um, grew up in a pastor's home. Um, my dad was, when I was born was a assistant pastor at a church and took his first church, um, when I was one and has continued to pastor ever since then. And so I was born and raised in an environment Um, that was protective of me and protected me from things outside of that. Um, I was homeschooled, um, again, um, protecting me from things from the outside. But um, unfortunately, as statistics tell us, and as we all have read on statistics, um, abuse, specifically sexual abuse, most of the time does not come from the outside. And so although my parents did everything they possibly could to protect me, Um, there was a family friend, um, also a pastor in the same denomination as, um, my dad. Um, they hung out together all the time. Um, our families, you know, would go to, to each other's houses. We travel and spend the weekend, um, with each other. Um, and then we'd spend time together at family camp. Um, and in, in that we developed, you know, a, a really good relationship with that family. And, um, the son of that family is ultimately, um, was, was the person who preyed on me. And, um, in my opinion, took advantage of that, um, relationship of trust that had been built because there's no way that my parents would have ever guessed anything like that would have happened. Um, there's no way that his parents would have ever guessed that anything like that would have happened. Um, he was quite a bit older than me. Um, and when I remember the abuse starting, um, my brain works in a way that I tend to block out traumatic experiences so much so that there's parts of my childhood, um, large blocks of my childhood that I don't actually remember. Um, And so somewhere between the age of nine to 11, 12, um, was where I remember the abuse starting. Um, and it kind of just led on from there. Um, there was a couple of times that I can remember specifically in my head what, what happened. Um, but really it was, um, it was just something that happened in my childhood that I completely blocked out until I was a little bit older, um, and was able to, con- to think about it. So let, let me do it. Cause I want to, I want to pause for a moment and really kind of saturate here because I mean, I want a full picture. Can, can you describe you as a kid, um, who you were and then maybe how that changed after this event? So, um, I was always a very hyperactive kid. Um, I was always into everything, trying to do, you know, whatever, whatever I could possibly get into to get into trouble or, <laughs> or just to be active. Um, 
And after, after the abuse happened, um, I would say that outwardly nothing changed. Um, because being raised in a pastor's home, um, my parents never put it on me that I had to act a certain way or be a certain way, but that's just kind of an understood thing that comes with being a PK is that you, you know, you have to kind of put on a facade. And so I was very, very good at that. Um, so I would say that outwardly it didn't affect me inwardly. Um, I went from being a happy go lucky kid to, um, I started struggling with depression, um, and self-harm when I was 11, 12 years old. Um, and, so it, it changed a lot of who I was on the inside, but not necessarily anything on the outside because I was so good at hiding all of that. And, and when you say PK, you mean preacher's kid. I'm one of those myself. Um, mm-hmm. That might be a foreign term to some listeners. And, and as I hear you say this, I I can't help but think your parents didn't know during this time that this had happened. Is that correct? Yeah, they had no idea. So they're uh, just seeing this marked change in their kiddo that, you know, all of a sudden depression, self-harm, uh, I mean, what, what was that dynamic with your, your parents? How did that shift after the abuse? So unfortunately I was so good at putting on a facade that I was able to put on a facade even for my parents. Um, wow. and, uh, so everything, all of my feelings, all of the self-harm, it happened behind closed door where no one could see, um, you know, I was, I was into cutting. That was a form of self-harm that I, that I used. And, you know, I would cut on the tops of my legs or somewhere where people wouldn't see. Um, so I was just very good at hiding everything. Um, that became kind of the, kind of who I was. I just hid everything that wasn't good and only showed the good parts of who I was. And so I I was actually good enough that it really was, I was able to hide it from my parents. So how long, how long did the abuse go on for? From what I can remember, um, I can remember specific places that it happened. And so I know that it had to have happened in the specific time period. So I would say, um, you know, like I said, probably between nine and 12, somewhere in there. So as I hear you say that you mentioned multiple places, was there any place that was safe for you from this individual or, you know, did that affect you as well? Not having a safe place. Um, I don't feel like there was really very many places that were safe because like I said, there had been such a trust developed with my family that, you know, we would go out to play outside or go back to the bedroom to play or whatever. And they wouldn't think anything about it. Um, you know, they just thought this was an older teen taking interest in, you know, one of, one of their kids and trying to be a good person and spend time with us. Um, and so they had no idea that it was happening. Well, before we go on to the next question, I mean, it's, it's amazing seeing you, uh, you know, we heard at the, at the top of the show, but all the amazing things you're doing with kids, uh, the amazing family you have right now, the relationship you have with your parents, um, and understanding that, that that is all there, something you had to fight for, be, be resilient to achieve, um, and overcome the adaptations that you made to survive through that trauma. Uh, and man, that's something to be proud of. I, I, I look at you and I'm like, wow, that's, that's amazing. I love that. And that's hope right there. Yeah. And before, before going too much further though, how long did you have to, cause we obviously know this now, 
But how long did you hold on to this secret? And what was that like keeping all that inside and, and holding that mask out for others and feeling that load uh, on, on your shoulders? Yeah, so I didn't talk to anyone about it until I was probably 17. Mm. Um, and the first person I talked to about it was um, a girlfriend in a relationship that we'd been in a relationship at that point for, I don't know, maybe a year and a half or so. So it was uh, it was a fairly developed relationship. I felt safe um, talking about it. So that was the first time I talked about it um, to anyone. Um, and then disclosed to my parents um, when I was somewhere around 18, 19, um, somewhere in that age. And really the only reason that I felt the need to disclose to them was I was afraid that something would have happened to my younger brother. Um, and so I disclosed to them then. Um, so it was probably a good, you know, at least six years, um, six to 10 years, um, from the time that the abuse started until the time that I told anyone. Um, and so in that time I developed, you know, like I said, I've developed a very intense depression. Um, cause I just, you know, I felt worthless and used and, you know, all of the cliche things that people, um, that have experienced sexual abuse say they're all true. Um, that, that is how you feel. And, uh, so that's just kind of the, the emotions that I, that I felt through all of that. Well, it's not lost on me. The, the catalyst for your, your sharing was to protect someone else. Um, you know, to be that protector. Uh, I, I love that imagery that you can now protect someone else. But thinking about that, I'm wondering how your parents reacted. I mean, how, how did that go down? Did you just sit down or, or just pop up during dinner like, hey, I have something to say? Like, how do you approach <laughs> a, a topic like that that's so heavy and you know is going to hurt uh, everyone mm-hmm. in the room and you're going to relive some of your own your own pain? How do you go about that? So, um, my parents and I, specifically my mom and I, we had a lot of late night discussions that, um, would just lead into different things. And, um, if I remember correctly, it was one of those. Um, and you know, obvious, obvious response was shock. They had no idea that any of this happened and, and, you know, um, very visibly upset that it had happened. Um, and, but we were kind of at a point where it'd been so long that it was, we weren't as a family educated on, um, you know, what our steps could have been, what steps we could have taken in that. And like I said, I was so good at, um, hiding how I really felt that, you know, on the outside, it appeared that I had moved on and that I was fine. Um, and so really it was a conversation, um, you know, we, we discussed what had happened and, you know, who it, who it had been. And there was a lot of crying, a lot of hugging. And, um, you know, I'm so sorry this happened. And, but in the end, we really didn't take any steps because I was so good at hiding how I really felt that, that to them, it it appeared that I had kind of moved on and that, um, that I was okay. So you, you tell your parents and you, nothing really happens then because of the true ignorance around the law and, and all those sorts of things. But, you know, we, we, the, the human in all of us wants some sort of justice to be served. Um, mm-hmm. Sometimes that is reconciliation. 
um, mm-hmm. with behavior changes, but it's my understanding, and, and it went real public, real quick. Um, you were actually able to to confront your perpetrator at one point. Mm-hmm. Can you fast forward and take us to that moment or, or the build up to that, um, and then we'll follow up some questions after that because it's a really intense situation. Yeah. So um, at that point in time, um, I was not full time ministry yet. I was still doing um, construction. And the lady that we had worked um, with, she was part of an organization that caught online predators. And she knew my story because, you know, obviously I shared my story with her after I found out what, you know, she was doing. And um, it was a few months after that, um, that she told me, hey, the guy that, that, you know, was your predator, he has contacted one of our decoys. And... um, Let's pause, let's pause right there and, and mm-hmm. just take a snapshot from John. When you heard that, that your perpetrator, uh, who, you know, it doesn't go away your thoughts of like this, or you may be able to escape, but thinking about he hasn't changed his behavior and is now inflicting this on other, how did, how did that make you feel? That was probably, I don't know, that might've been other than the abuse itself, the hardest point of time for me because um, I remember we were at my in-laws house, we were at a family thing. Um, and I just told my wife, Hey, I gotta run. I gotta go, uh, take a drive. Hmm. And so she knows me well enough to know that when I, when it's something like that, I just need to get out. And so I remember driving around for probably 30, 45 minutes, just processing all the emotions. And, um, you know, it makes you feel to me, it, it was a lot of blame that maybe if I would have come forward sooner, maybe more people wouldn't have been preyed upon. Um, you know, all this time I thought maybe it was just me. Maybe, you know, it was just a dumb thing that happened. He was a teen. I was a kid. Maybe he's not really a predator. All of those things that you tell yourself. And that was the moment that all of those things became false. And it was the moment of staring in the face of this person actually was a predator, not just someone that preyed on me, but you know, and is a predator. Well, it, it almost sounds like, so you're taking on that guilt. Uh, you already feel the shame and you're taking on all the responsibility for someone else's behaviors. And that's not, that's not your fault that you, you feel what you feel. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's, that's so, so much. And I can understand out of that. I would probably feel angry too. I mean, just, I was uh, very angry. Oh my God. <laughs> I, let's, I, I, fighting words let's go but mm-hmm. but you were able to to channel and, and I listened to it and I don't want to give away too much because I want you to tell it but such a beautiful way that you approached uh actually confronting your predator but take us back into that so, so you're driving around you heard that and then what what happened next um so then it just kind of was a build-up over months of time where you know, there would be, Hey, we can meet up here. We can meet up here with the decoy. And, um, and the lady that, that I know that's part of that organization, um, calling me and saying, Hey, I just want to let you know that if you want to confront him, that is on the table. You can, if you want, um, no pressure. I understand, you know, your feelings and, and whatever. And so kind of just was, I think twice, maybe only once, um, before, um, he actually met up with them that he was, planning a meetup. And so just that stress of what do I do? Do I actually confront? Do I not? Am I ready for this? Um, so just a lot of 
stress and and a lot of feelings, a well, lot, a lot of feelings. Sure, you you find yourself in what is, <laughs> I can imagine it's like the surreal Dateline Dateline NBC where you're like, mm-hmm. this is supposed to be on TV. This isn't supposed to be me, you know. Mm-hmm. Tonight, John Hopkins. Like, no, that's that's my name out there. That's mm-hmm. my story, and especially after having had it be a secret for a decade almost, mm-hmm. um, something that you, you, who wants that out there too, you know? But uh, this guy who multiple times molested you as a kid hasn't changed his behavior. Now you have an opportunity. Your heart's beating out of your chest as you go into this moment. What did that look like, the, the confrontation itself? Um, so they told me, Hey, um, we understand that you probably don't want to go in person, but if you want to make this phone call, um, to call in and confront him, um, we, we want that to happen. And so I was still like, do I do it? Do I not? And, um, so I remember saying if, if you guys want to bring my story into it, that's fine. And if he admits to it, then I won't confront him, but if he doesn't, then I will. And so you know, if you watch the video, there's point in time where they bring my name up. Um, not my last name, but my first name. Um, and he doesn't admit to it and says that, you know, he can't remember anything. And then that's when they bring me in. But it's like, I don't remember how long it is, maybe 45 minutes worth of video before this happens. And I'm just in my garage on my phone with headphones in like this, just pacing back and forth. And I remember just praying like, God, I have got to show you and I've got to show who you are in this moment. And, you know, I can't just show how I feel. I can't, you know, bring up things from the past, you know, all of those feelings from the past, they can't be in this moment. I have to show you, but I also have to confront him. And, and I remember just praying like, God, you've got to put words in my mouth. And honestly, I barely remember what I said because I barely got the words out, um, when the moment came. Um, but one of the things um, that popped in my head was um, scripture uh, from Genesis chapter 50 and verse 20. It says um, in the NIV, it says you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. And that's kind of just what I wanted to tell him. Like, Hey, you might think that you ruined my life, but in reality um, the things you did put me in the position that I'm in now to where I can help others. It, I, surreal intense what's his reaction to that because up till then it was <clears throat> I'm, I'm denying this i've i've got to get out of this uh you know i'm cornered i'm caught uh, denial what was his reaction to when you said that and kind of offered what sounds to me like accountability mixed with mercy like you're still going to have the consequences of your action but there is mercy and an opportunity for some level of reconciliation here mm-hmm did he take so, that? Um, no, he just kind of left it the way he had it before that. I don't remember this happening. If I did this, I'm sorry, but I don't remember it. Um, it's just kind of how he left it. If I did this, I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. What? And that's, that's just insane uh, because here you are at least offering something to him and, you know, he doesn't take it, doubles down on denial that's got a that's got a kind of I don't know what that would feel like some sort of way that he's denying the reality of your story. Yeah, so I mean, I don't know, I kind of in the moment I just felt complete relief as soon as it was over. Um because there'd been such a build up and so much stress and I mean, I'm 
quite literally physically shaking um, and trying to get words out through choking up and tears and memories and all this stuff. And so when it was over, it was really just kind of a relief. And then like a week later, all of the other emotions started to set in and then, um, you know, kind of became angry and overwhelmed. And, um, I hadn't been to therapy in a couple of years and like, it's like, Hey, I got to go back. And so started therapy again, just to kind of work through those emotions and why I felt that way. Well, sure. I mean, this is, this is another form of that little T trauma coming in, you know, Mm -hmm. it's not something physical, but this time, you know, your heart's still racing, you're reliving moments, you're actually going toe to toe with the person who, you know, it was a a perpetrator. Um, Mm -hmm. So let's, let's look at that therapy though, because Mm -hmm. you said you'd already been to therapy. Uh, I guess I'd ask, what was the, what was the first catalyst for you to go to therapy? Uh, We can certainly understand going and facing your perpetrator would be an event that you may want to go talk to a licensed professional about. But what was that, what was that first catalyst that had you go into therapy and maybe tell us how important the counseling therapy journey was for your restoration? So, um, started out when I was getting ready to get married. Um, I was engaged to my wife and, um, there was a lot of, I guess, change happening, um, that brought it, brought in a lot of these memories. Um, a lot of the trauma came back. And so I had reached a point where I was doing pretty well, um, with my mental health, um, with no therapy or anything, just kind of being so involved with stuff that I didn't have time to think essentially. Um, and so then when all this change was happening, um, it, my self-harm started again. I was, I don't know, 20, I think at that point in time. Um, and so I kind of tried to deal with it on my own and it got to the point where I realized that, uh, I'm going to reach the point of no return. And so I've got to get help. So I reached out to some friends, um, reached out eventually to my wife, because again, I've got this whole mindset that I have to be good. I, that I can't be broken. Um, and I definitely didn't want to show my fiance, um, my soon to be wife, how broken I really was. Um, so eventually, you know, reached out to her. Um, she actually at that point in time was working on her, um, degree in, um, social work with a focus on sexual, um, trauma. So, um, why, I, why I felt wow. the need to not reach out to her. <laughs> that's, that's a pairing right there. That's yeah. amazing. So, um, so reached out to her then, um, to my parents and ended up, uh, having to drop out of school, um, because of my mental health. Um, and so I dropped out of school early and went and got therapy. And this is kind of something that people don't talk about. Not every therapist is going to work for you. Sure. Yeah. Um, so the therapist that I saw, she was a good lady. She's a good person. Um, I know people that still see her today and, um, love going to see her, but she didn't work out for me. Um, and I was in such a mental space that I didn't want to try again. Um, so I took a lot of the baggage, um, with me into my marriage and got to the point probably six months into my marriage that my wife was like, listen, you've got to get help or this isn't going to work. Um, because I had so much, um, that I was dealing with. And so I said, well, I don't like counselors, especially Christian counselors, because the one I went to was terrible. And she said, well, that's because not everybody will work for you. 
So we agreed that I would see a counselor. And um, so I searched, I just searched counselors in that area or therapists in that area and um, chose one that was not a Christian therapist um, and showed up, started kind of pouring everything out to him. And in the conversation came up that I was a pastor's kid and he said, oh, well, I was a pastor before this. So essentially I was seeing a Christian therapist. (laughs) He just wasn't listed as that. So, yeah, so I can, um, he was great. Um, I went to him until we moved. Um, so I can still take you to his office in Louisville. Um, I can take you to the, the chair that I would sit in when I, when I waited for him to be ready for me. Um, I mean, he was, he was great. I learned so much. Um, and just, was able to process a lot of feelings and process a lot of this is why this happened and this is why I feel this way. And, um, so yeah, saw him, uh, every week until we moved, um, from Louisville area up to Cincinnati. Well, you mentioned, and I love seeing the fingerprints of God on even your therapy journey, but you mentioned having to be uh, the feeling of having to be perfect and not showing others that you're broken. Mm-hmm. Where, where did that come from? So that's a complicated one. (laughs) So I think it was a mixture of things. Um, A lot of times in, at least in the Christian realms that you and I grew up in, um, showing brokenness is showing weakness. Showing weakness is showing your sin. And you don't show your sin because then people will think that you're not as good of a Christian as you say you are, Um, which is not true. That's not how God works at all. Um, but, but that was, so that being part of it and then just being raised in an environment where, um, maybe perfection is not a good word, but, um, there, I always felt like I wasn't good enough and no, no shade on my parents or, um, people I was raised around. That was just my trauma coming through that. Um, and the fact that I was raised in the Christian environment that I was raised in, I think had a lot to play into that. It wasn't just my sin, but any brokenness I couldn't show because I wouldn't be good enough somehow wouldn't be good enough for God. Well, and I'm sure that helps you to, or or motivated you rather for, for, to put on the masks and learn, you know, this situation I'm putting on this one and the situation I'm putting on this one, but just not showing the real John underneath. Mm -hmm. uh, Cause you won't, you won't like the real John. You won't yeah. like, but you know, and that's not, that's not the truth mm-hmm. with that, your therapy journey and helping along those lines of, you know, broken, perfect, uh, all the truth that actually is in your life. What does that actually look like for someone that's out there listening? And they're like, I hear you, but, um, I'm not doing that because I don't believe in that Freudian stuff where they talk about your mother and you look at ink <laughs> blots. I'm just not doing it. Um, I'm just going to sit over here and read God's word, which is powerful. Uh, but the aid of therapy along with that, what did that look like for you actually? So the first time that I went, I was extremely nervous. Um, so I guess I should back up the first time that I went to a professional therapist that wasn't just like a church therapist, a church counselor. Um, I was extremely nervous when I went in there, um, because I had to admit a lot of things you know, a lot of things that I was struggling with and I had to admit my brokenness. And that was, you know, I didn't want to do that. And, um, so going in, I felt the same way that it was going to be, this guy was going to try to throw out some, you know, whatever 
uh, spells to make me feel better about myself. Um, and in reality, it was just sitting down, let's have a conversation. And, you know, they've spent years and years training and learning and um, understanding, you know, how the human mind works and how our emotions work. And so being able to being able to um, put that alongside of what I know about Christianity and what I know about God and what I know about God's grace, the two things together are the only thing that could get me to where I am because I believed in God's grace. I cannot tell you the amount of times that I was at the altar. Um, I can't tell you the amount of times that I laid on my dorm room floor at UBC, punching the floor, screaming, asking God to change who I was because I couldn't stand who I was and what had, what had happened to me. And so I understood that God had the grace and the ability to do that. But um, for me, I needed someone that to help me understand those things and those feelings. And um, I needed someone that was a professional that could walk me through that. Wow. And I, and, and I think there's others that resonate with your, your, your experience where they're working the formula, they're doing the prayers, they're doing the fasting, they're doing the, uh, you, the self-denial and the formula is not working. So, you know, well, it must be a problem with me. I, mm-hmm. I'm just not good enough or I'm not doing enough of this. And, and really, you know, it's just the misunderstanding and, and the relationship. Um, mm-hmm. Wow. That's powerful stuff, right? That's a whole nother podcast. though. that's a whole nother <laughs> episode uh, that we could go into. I know that you, uh, you have a passion for helping others along these lines. And, and so I want to shift gears a little bit um, and, and give you time maybe to, to answer because you've looked at this and you've experienced the wrong side of when uh, kids don't get protected. Mm-hmm. And, and my question, I guess, would be, is there more that the church and denominations and groups can do to prevent what happened to you and prevent that from happening again? Um, so short answer, no. Long answer, yes. <laughs> so there is always more that the church can do. You're not going to stop abuse. Um, in the situation that I was in, I have looked back and thought about, could someone have done something different? Could this denomination have done something different at their camp? Could my parents have done something different? Could his parents have done something different? There is literally nothing that anyone could have done different that would have stopped this from happening. Um, because just all of the circumstances surrounding it. But, um, I would say that a lot of churches and a lot of denominations don't do enough to try. Um, and so I think that the one thing that probably would have made a difference is if um, talking about sexual abuse, um, talking about sex in general would have not been such a taboo subject um, because it was almost like it was considered being dirty, talking dirty. Um, and you know, we all grew up as teenagers that probably said things and did things that, you know, we shouldn't have. But outside of that, there was no, there wasn't adults talking about healthy sexual relationships. Um, and there was no one talking about, at least in my case, talking about what does sexual abuse look like? What does that mean? How can we, um, how can we educate our kids on who to talk to and what to say? And so I feel like that is probably the biggest thing. I mean, there's all kinds of things that you can do as far as background checks and making sure that all of your Um, Sunday school classrooms have doors that have windows on them or there's all sorts of things you can do like that. But in reality, I think the way that you're going to be able to 
um, really affects a difference is if, um, if you talk about it and if you allow kids to talk about it, uh, obviously in a healthy way, but, uh, to bring up those conversations. Oh, sure. Awareness. Um, I mean, putting that on the forefront of everybody's mind so that, you know, when they do that background check or they're, you know, required to do a training to go to a kid's camp. Cause, uh, I mean, I traveled for, uh, a, a group from, a from a college, uh, outreach, uh, for public relations. And we went to multiple youth camps over however many years. And I never took one background check as a, you know, 16 through 21 year old. Um, and that's mm-hmm. how long I was traveling. So yeah, that's crazy. Uh, but I agree with you. Awareness, talking about it, making sure that people, uh, and there's, you're right, there's a right way to do it. Um, and certainly different age groups, right ways to do it. Um, in, in talking about stories, coming back to your story from that, you know, you're, you share your story to raise awareness as well. So you're putting your money where your mouth is, your reputation mm-hmm. is on the line there. Is there, is there a part, uh, what, let me ask it this, this way. What's the most difficult part about sharing your story? And are you afraid of being misunderstood uh, with sharing your story? Um, I'd say the most difficult part is knowing that it's going to cause some uncomfortable reactions. Um, you know, it's gonna, there's gonna be someone that, that hears it that has um, experienced abuse, that it's gonna bring up some traumatic memories. Um, there's gonna be people that don't like talking about it and it's gonna bring up some real uncomfortable topics for them. Um, so I'd say that that's probably the hardest part is just knowing um, in the circles that I share my story and I should say knowing the feelings that are being had while I share uh, my story. Um, and I think that for me, I don't want people to think that this is some sort of way for me to gain popularity or fame and, Oh, you know, I'm going to share my story so I can, so I can get out there more. That's a and terrible that been, way to do it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, and that actually has been, you know, um, said someone said, you know, well, I just wish that, you know, John wouldn't have made such a big deal about this. And, you know, mm-hmm. someone that's, that's a leader, you know, in my, and well, not my church circles, but church circles I grew up around. Um, and so it's just, you know, that I don't want that to me of, of all the ways to gain popularity and to gain fame, this would be the, probably the lowest on the line of, uh, or on the list of ways to get that. Um, so I just don't want that to be like that. This is some way that I want to become popular, or this is some way that I want to tear down the people that I grew up around or the denominations that I grew up around. Um, that this is, that's not the point at all. The point is to help build those things up. Absolutely. I would, I would validate that and, and tell you in response to that, as others are listening, your story is yours to share your experience, no matter what others think is absolutely yours to share. And you should absolutely have a voice and a platform to share that. Um, and ultimately you're doing it to try to raise awareness and, and, uh, protect others and glorify God through what you're doing. And in response to, I don't know who that person was, but I would, if they're in leadership, I would, I would say too, and I want to be careful, but if they think that you're making too big of a deal about sexual assault in the church on children, um, I would challenge them to make a bigger deal about it themselves and, uh, make their own, uh, make their own church safer through awareness, 
better policing of their own, uh, you know, church. Uh, so I'll, I'll leave that because I could go down a trail. <laughs> but I want I want to give you an opportunity here to continue that platform and maybe tell us a little bit about where people can find out more about you and, and what you do. Yeah. So um, recently, I was able to partner with um, a professional counselor and a victim's advocate to start a website um, called chm2.com. And what that is, is CHM, for those listening that wouldn't know what that is, is Conservative Holiness Movement. That's just the background of churches that I grew up in. Um, And so we wanted to, we were brainstorming and trying to figure out how do we make a difference with with these stories that have come out because what happened was um, Dr. Graham shared um, some statistics and um, some information. And after that had people reach out to him and say, Hey, I've experienced this in my life. Um, And then Reggie, um, our victim's advocate, she had a similar situation where she shared some of her story and people reached out to her. And as soon as um, I shared anything about my story, I had a lot of people reaching out and saying, hey, we've experienced this too in the same church background that, that you grew up in. And so we wanted to take those people's stories, provide a place for them to share their story if they felt like that they were ready for that, um, but also to gather statistics so that we could show that it really is a problem within the circles of churches that we grew up in. But more than just to prove that it was a problem, also provide um, a platform for people that are leaders in churches or that, um, you know, their kids have, um, experienced some type of sexual abuse, a place for them to gather resources, be able to find counseling if they needed it. Um, whatever those things would look like for them that we would provide resources for them as well. So with that, that's, that's no small thing. (laughs) That's no small thing. What what would you say to people that, uh, and you said that's at CHM, Two T O O, yeah. Is it dot com? Yep. C H M T O O C H M two dot com. What would you say to individuals that look at that and they're like, "What are you? What are you doing?" I I, I appreciate the sentiment, but you're just fomenting things and looking for trouble. This is not the way to do it. You're dividing the church, not unifying it. And you know, the Bible calls us to unification. And you're not helping with this. You're just causing trouble. What, what do you say to those that detract from you in that way? Well, I mean, that's their opinion. And I guess they're they're entitled to that opinion. Um, but I would say that, again, that's not the goal at all. The goal isn't to cause division. The goal isn't to tear down every you know denomination in the CHM or every church within the CHM. But the denomin- the, yeah, the goal is that we would help those denominations get the um, resources that they need and learn how to react and how, um, how to listen and how to believe a, a survivor of sexual abuse and how to um, report if they need to report, whatever those things are, um, because there seems to be a lack of education um, in how to deal with survivors of sexual abuse and how to deal with predators themselves. Um, and so I think that, that we want that to be a platform that doesn't tear down, but instead builds up. Um, but I think that we definitely are going to have and have had some people that that is what they feel like that we're about. And that's what we're trying to do. Well, sure. I mean, you know, when, when secrets are exposed, it's very uncomfortable 
but it, it sounds like what I'm hearing from you, this is a, is a sincere effort to gather data to make sure that data-wise, you can say this is a problem, but not just leave it as a problem unaddressed. Say, hey, we can be better. We can do better. And here's mm -hmm. the resources to uh, make sure that lives are restored to what God has intended for each each precious person. And, mm -hmm. and taking the individual's approach over, you know, the organization approach, mm -hmm. actually saving the person over the denomination, but not sacrificing, you know, the group itself. Let's, let's all yeah. do this together. So that's interesting. We'll, we'll put that in the, uh, in the show notes as, as uh, a quick link for people to get to. Um, John, before I let you go, I always like to give the guests the opportunity to kind of speak directly to the listener. If it's something we've talked about today or an overarching thought you have, or, or maybe some, some group you want to talk to, or maybe even, you know, someone back from you know, that may have experienced what you're experiencing. If there's a final thought for, for our listeners from John, what would that be? I would say that, um, to remember that bad things happen to good people and that bad things don't have to define who you are. Um, this, like the scripture said that, that I read earlier, that things can be meant for our evil. Um, but through God's grace and in my case, through therapy, um, those things can be turned around and used for good. And, uh, so, and share your story, um, with someone. It doesn't have to be publicly. You don't have to go on Facebook and create a video and, and make people see your story that way. But share your story because there is a power in sharing your story and it begins that healing process of, um, of you know, moving along in the, in the healing journey that you're on um, to be able to share that with someone and to realize that you're not alone, that um, you're, you're not alone in your sexual abuse and that, um, that God can use that for good, even though it was not intended for good. Wow. And God's grace coupled with anything is amazing. God's grace coupled with professional therapy. What, what a powerhouse that can be for mm -hmm. the restoration of, of anyone. Um, mm -hmm. Thankful for that. Well, John, we're coming to close here. Thank you so much for, for being brave and, uh, and, and coming on the show to share your story with others. Yeah. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. And thank you to the listener for joining us on this one, a heavy one, but coming out of it, um, some, some things that we can think about and maybe go back to our own church and ask our leaders, hey, what do we have in place at this church to make sure that this type of thing doesn't happen to our kiddos? And if there's not anything there, uh, you can reach out to John or you can reach out to Grace Story Ministries uh, and, and see if there are resources. Certainly, John would love to hear from you on that. Check the show notes for his email. I'm sure he'd love to hear from you. Until uh, we're back in two weeks, until then, uh, make sure you hit, hit up GraceStoryMinistries.com and check out all the resources over there. Sign up for the newsletter. Hit up our YouTube channel as well. All sorts of things popping up over there. Like I say every time, there is no us without you. So get engaged, get on with your journey of restoration, and we'll be praying for you. See you in two weeks.